The Indie Insider Podcast is presented by Blackshell Media, a publishing and marketing firm working to help independent video game developers reach massive audiences, publish financially successful titles, and turn game development into a career. The company also offers educational resources for aspiring and experienced developers alike, which is why we get to bring this show to you every week. For more on Blackshell Media, visit blackshellmedia.com. Hey everyone, Play NYC is this weekend, August 19th and 20th at Terminal 5 in the heart of Manhattan, and we're all super excited. I mean, that's why I made three weeks worth of episodes about it. But if you don't have your tickets yet, now is the time to get them. You can order them online at play-nyc.com, and you can enter the code INDIEINSIDER at checkout for 20% off. That's INDIEINSIDER, all one word and all capital letters. And just so you know, it's not an affiliate code or anything, so don't worry about us here. This is just something special we wanted to make sure you knew about, so we could see as many of you in New York as possible this weekend. And thank you for joining us and following the Indie Insider Podcast. Enjoy this week's episode. Welcome to Indie Insider Presents The Road to Play NYC, a limited Indie Insider series. I'm your guide, Logan Schultz, and this is the final episode of our three-part miniseries where I'm talking with indie developers, professionals, and companies who will all be attending Play NYC, New York City's first dedicated gaming convention. The convention is this weekend, but today, Dan Butchko from Playcrafting is back to share some exclusive announcements about the convention, including some surprise guests you'll definitely want to know about. Then we sit down with the developer behind a shiny new indie studio, and a husband and wife duo making art and games that are taking the world by storm. Plus, I have some exclusive announcements of my own to share with all of you as we close in on the 50th episode of the Indie Insider Podcast, including special guests, giveaways, and more. This is Indie Insider. If this is your first time joining us for the Indie Insider Podcast, welcome, and thank you for taking the time to check us out. And if you're a regular now, I can't thank you enough for your support. It's the reason we've made it to 47 episodes, and I absolutely cannot wait for our upcoming 50th episode spectacular. But the celebration doesn't start in a couple weeks. It starts now. We have big name guests coming in to celebrate our 50th episode in the weeks leading up to the event. Next week, for episode 48, I'll be talking with Frederick Wester, the CEO of Paradox Interactive. We'll be talking through his impressive history, how the company came to be, managing partnerships, overseeing a booming publishing company, and more. He's an impressive guy in charge of an impressive company, and I can't wait to share his thoughts with all of you. But then, for episode 49, I'll be chatting with Craig Morrison, the design director of a little company called Blizzard Entertainment. If you have even a passing interest in the design of video games, you need to check out this interview. Craig will be dropping some serious knowledge as to how Blizzard designs some of their amazing games, and I guarantee you'll take something new away from it. And now for the big reveal. The special guest of our 50th episode special is none other than Nolan Bushnell, father of the video game industry, founder of Atari, and trailblazer of technology startups and industry. He has some brilliant insight into business management, technology that has yet to shape the industry, what it takes to start a studio in this day and age, and his advice for those of you ready to make the next step in your career. Oh man, I've, I've been holding that announcement in for way too long and it feels good to finally say it. Plus, our 50th episode special won't end there. 
We'll have friends and previous guests of the show stopping by a massive giveaway, including books, courses, and more to help you take the next steps in your game development career, and even more surprises that you'll just have to wait to find out. But enough about the future. Let's focus on now, and what's happening right now is Play NYC. Besides, I'm not the only one with exclusive announcements to share with all of you. Dan Butchko has returned one last time to share some huge news about what and who you might see at Play NYC. Dan, welcome back to the show. It's Monday today. The convention is this weekend. It's happening, man. It's here. I can't believe it's only four days away. It's extremely exciting. Uh, our team is just chugging away. I can't believe we're this close and we're going to be accomplishing something so big with such a frankly small team. <laughs> I'm so excited. We've had you on the past couple of weeks. You've been talking about some of the things people can expect at the show. We've talked about a couple of specific people that people will see, but I'm excited to have you here today because I know you've got some exciting announcements that you want to share. I'm just going to let you take it away. What do you have to share with people today? Sure. So one of the biggest parts about Plan NYC that I've been excited about is how much of a response we've had from the broader industry. And we've used our talks and panels and the speakers and panelists that are a part of them as a real way to involve the broader industry, bring in some big wigs from across gaming, regardless of which city they're from, which country they're from, etc. So I wanted to go through and just give you some announcements about the folks that are going to be a part of the talks and panels. Um, the talks and panels are a part of uh, a separate piece of Play NYC. So obviously we, we didn't want everyone to be speaking in the middle of a, an open show floor. So that's happening <laughs> in a totally separate space close to Terminal 5. If you check out the site, uh, if you get a devs and pros pass, uh, you can definitely come to them. We are going to be doing recaps and recording some of them as well. So even if you can't make it to that, we will have that stuff posted after the fact. But I wanted to go through and share some of them with you. Yeah, absolutely. Let's do it. So we have Pat Vance. Pat is the president of the ESRB. That's the ratings board that rates all of the games that you see that little black and white box on the bottom left of. Uh, I'm excited about Pat being there because she's going to speak specifically on how the ESRB and the rating system fits into the new age of, of games. And since developers, many indie developers especially, are... Uh, self-publishing and just posting their games on places like the App Store, Steam, etc. without the ESRB in place. She's going to be speaking on how the ESRB is adapting to the change in technology and the industry as a whole. That's really cool to me. Uh, I just had to interject. I was just thinking, we've never talked about ratings at all on the Indie Insider podcast. It's not even something you think about in the indie industry. You don't have to. Yeah, and, and it's funny. I think that I think Pat's going to make the case. So I'm excited to hear what she has to say. Um, and uh, she knows that the you know there's a very independent developer focus on this conference and on this convention. So uh, it's going to be really interesting what she has to say. And I'm excited to hear sort of what that roadmap is for them moving forward. Awesome. I love it. What else do you have for me, Dan? So I've said multiple times on here, Logan, how a key mission of launching Play NYC is to help elevate New York City as a whole and specifically its developers in terms of the broader industry to really help New York get put on the map for its 
developer community, it's gamers and all the people that are touched by games and making games in and around New York and the tri-state area. I've been really excited that we've had a great response from the local government in New York as well. So at the event, we're going to have Howard Zemsky. Uh, he was appointed by Governor Andrew Cuomo, uh, New York State Governor, uh, to the, be the head of the Empire State Development Corporation. They are specifically tasked with growing out industries uh, in New York, and gaming is a really key focus of theirs. So I was really excited to have him on board. Plus, we have Senator Golden. Now, Senator Golden is uh, a local state senator in New York. He's really been driving the push for tax incentives for game developers in New York City. Now, if you're familiar with uh, the government side of, of how government impacts games, you'll know that places like California, places like, uh, I think now Texas, places like even up in Canada in Montreal and Quebec, they are real centers of game development from a the perspective of AAA studios in large part because the government provides tax incentives for those larger scale developers to set up studios there and to set up satellites. New York doesn't have that. And uh, we believe and they believe that uh, a big reason for that is that the tax incentives are not in place for large scale developers and studios to really set up shop uh, and make a, a satellite office or studio in New York City. So I'm really excited to have Senator Golden there and uh, Howard from Empire State Development Group because, you know, in large part, Play NYC, if we can help elevate developers and help get their voices heard, even on the government side, then the push for those tax incentives will be heard even more so. And I'm hopeful that this will, um, you know, not just with Play NYC happening and becoming a thing, but with the government interest in it, I'm hopeful that it will help have a measurable impact on getting those incentives passed. I wanted to tell you specifically about Avalanche Studios. So Avalanche is by far the, the most notable AAA studio in New York City. Um, there's other companies here that have uh, some satellite offices that focus more so on like the marketing or the business side. Avalanche has a full-on development studio in New York City. And even without those tax incentives in place, they have been such champions of staying in New York and making sure that they are at the forefront of getting New York on the map for its development studios and really leading that charge. So Avalanche has been a huge partner on Play NYC. They are going to be on the show floor with some games. They'll be a big part of the live stream. And they're also going to have a number of people uh, that are going to be a part of the talks and panels throughout the weekend as well. Uh, we wanted to make sure that they were a part of that program since really being the key AAA in-house development studio in New York that bears that carries a lot of clout and it really carries uh, that message through of helping to put New York on the map. So we've been doing with Playcrafting a series of uh, avalanche talks throughout the month of July. And uh, that was kind of in the lead up to Play NYC. That was by Avalanche for developers uh, that are local. And we are just amplifying that at Play NYC with that booth presence as well as a number of speakers on the 
development side as well as the business side uh, of Avalanche that really is going to help amp up those uh, those talks and panels on the show floor. Cool. Of course, in terms of speakers and panels at Play NYC, we really wanted to make sure that some of the key developers and industry people were a big part of it. And since Playcrafting has been in New York for years now, that has been so easy to put together because everyone is super excited about it locally. There's a few key speakers that I wanted to specifically point out. Um, we have Greg Heffernan. Greg is a local developer. Uh, his, his previous game called Off Peak, uh, he, he told me was, quote, forged in the fires of playcrafting. Um, and that's because uh, he had taken a couple of Unity workshops through us with our local uh, New York Unity instructor. And it really helped uh, just bring his game off peak to the next level before release. His next game is called The Norwood Suite. I saw it about a year and a half ago. I played it, it was a super early build, but it had a lot of promise. He's, his background originally is in audio and music. So uh, he brings this like very uh, theatrical, musical, also very surreal vibe to his games. They're super weird, which I love. Um, and the Norwood Suite is just like an amplified version of his previous work. We're going to be closing out the first day of talks and panels with a live playthrough and performance from Greg uh, of his new game, The Norwood Suite. And I just think that that is the perfect way to close out the talks and panels because he just represents really what Play NYC is all about. And it's just a really cool way to mix things up. Of course, we're gonna have him as part of the uh, live stream as well. Um, on top of Greg, we also have Zach Zinger. Zach Zinger is this really accomplished uh, audio expert, uh, performer, musician, composer. Uh, one of his most notable works that he contributed to was Street Fighter V. He's going to be doing uh, an audio talk. Uh, that's another thing, you know, I love when people hear about what Zach's been doing. They hear the, the work he's been associated work with and has worked on, and they're like, wow, I had no idea he was here in New York. Um, I'm so excited for him to be a part of it. And then on top of that, uh, we have a group called the New York Video Game Critics Circle. That is really a, a highly respected organization here in New York that is comprised of really the, the key members of the press, representing all different outlets from Polygon to Kotaku to Killscreen, as well as uh, the gaming side of larger uh, non-gaming only press, such as the New York Times and Time and Newsweek, etc. Um, the, the writers, the critics that are in that circle have been associated with and are working on some of the biggest publications in the world in gaming and otherwise. They're going to be at the event. They're going to be doing a panel uh, speaking specifically to uh, the interaction between indie developers and uh, press themselves. And again, because they are local to New York, uh, I'm excited to see how uh, people react to just hearing them being in New York and um, getting to see how, you know, New York, how gaming is touching all these different industries and how New York being such a place of multiple different entertainment mediums and multiple industries really has people of all different walks of life 
contributing to uh, to the industry and the medium itself. So those are just some some key highlights too on the New York side. There's others as well. I wish I could go through all the speakers and all the panelists, but uh, those are, are some of the key ones. So the talks and panels for us have been a way to galvanize and bring together people that are already in the community in New York. And as I mentioned, bring in people that are in the stratosphere in terms of the larger industry as a whole, in terms of the uh, the nation and just worldwide game industry. And it's just been so exciting, especially in year one, to get that response as we have. And I can't wait to build on it in year two. But let's let's get this week out of the way first. <laughs> <laughs> Play NYC is only a few days away. It's going to be huge, Dan. Congratulations on you know all of this. And I'm sure it's going to be a great weekend. Thank you so much. And thank you again for taking the time to talk to me, talk to some of the developers and the key folks that are a part of Play NYC. Uh, Indie Insider really sort of exemplifies what we've been doing with Playcrafting and what we've been doing now with Play NYC and really using it as a platform for independent developers and people that are, you know, a part of larger studios to get their voices heard and to really share ideas and connect. So I'm so excited that we've been able to do this in the past few weeks. I'm happy to help, uh, but Dan, it, it is crunch time now, my friend. You got to get out there and and finish getting things put together. And I have f- a few more fantastic indie devs to talk to um, who are going to be your, your convention this weekend. So I got to get to them, and you got to get back to work. All right. Awesome. Have a blast. I'm going to be underwater now for the next few days. <laughs> all right. Good luck, and uh, and of course, everyone can see you this weekend at Play NYC. Yeah, come out to it. It's going to be an incredible, incredible weekend, and we would love to have you there. I'm Rob Canciello. I'm an independent game developer in New York City. Um, I am a member of a team called EOS Interactive, and we develop small indie games in New York. Uh, Well, I founded it with uh, one of my fellow uh, founding members, Jose Zambrano. Um, We actually both took the eight-week Unity course provided by Playcrafting, and that's where we met each other. Um, Yeah, so I grew up with an older brother who, you know, he had everything like an NES, uh, Sega Genesis, and I've started playing a lot of those games with him. I was in high school and I was like doing a lot of theater actually, and that was going to be my major. Um, But I was playing a lot of a game called Time Splitters Future Perfect, um, and I was kind of going crazy with their map maker and like making environments and and, uh, maps. and. I noticed that like oftentimes I would just kind of stop while playing and just kind of look around my levels, appreciate the environments. Uh, I would do that in Zelda as well and like Kingdom Hearts and all these games. And I realized I kind of wanted to create these environments in some way. And during my freshman year I started playing indie games, like right when Braid came out. And as I was playing them, my focus kind of switched a little bit from just making environments to actually creating experiences. Throughout school, I did uh, the Global Game Jam. And the first time I did the Global Game Jam in, I think, 2011, uh, I experienced what it was like to develop kind of in a very fast-paced environment with a few other people um, and kind of see in a very uh, time-crunched manner 
the experience of developing a game. And that's what gave me the hook. Um, I was kind of not sure like what I would do in game development. And, you know, I'm still finding my path right now. But um, once I saw how people were all kind of like going back and forth between the artists and the developers and the designers and like seeing that whole system and the back and forth, um, it really uh, piqued my interest. Um, so that's kind of what I do now, which is like kind of like project management, uh, design, prototyping, that sort of thing. Um, from you. there, uh, I graduated and uh, I kind of, you know, I didn't, when I got out of college, I didn't really have 100% the portfolio I needed or the skills. My major was good because it was broad, but uh, wasn't the most effective in kind of getting me ready for the industry. Okay. Um, so that's where kind of playcrafting came in. Uh, I wanted to get better at my skills and, you know, I was already out of college and in student loan debt and uh, <laughs> I needed to have a job. So while working full time, I was able to take the playcrafting courses, um, which taught me how to code, taught me, taught me how to work with a team. Um, well, I did that outside of it, but uh, kind of brought me together and gave me other people who were interested in game development in New York City. So I want to dive into that just a little bit. So sure. that's something unique that I haven't actually heard on the Indian Insider podcast before, although I'm sure it's been true of some of our previous guests, but you actually graduated from college mm -hmm. in a field that was, you know, uh, with a degree at least that was semi-close to what you wanted to be doing. Yeah. But you didn't you didn't feel prepared, you didn't have the portfolio or the skills to really do what you wanted to do, or, or mm -hmm. at least to get where you wanted to go. Is that Abs right? Absolutely correct. <laughs> so you just sought out supplemental education? Mm-hmm. I, yeah. I guess that's really impressive that not only were you self-aware enough to know that you didn't have enough information or experience or, or knowledge, but that you also then sought it out. That, that, mm. That's interesting to me. Yeah, I, I going. I mean, going into college and and even throughout college, I was very frustrated because I would see other students who like they knew they wanted to be a, you know a chemist or they knew they wanted to be just an animator or just a graphic designer, and uh, I was very frustrated because I didn't have any form of like passion, you know. Like, yes, I was taking a programming course and yes, I was taking an, a modeling course, but I didn't really have any of that zeal that some of the other students had. So when I got out of college, I didn't feel like I put 100% of my effort into it. Um, and then afterwards, I found my passion was actually for finding a passion. If that sounds, makes any sense. I was, <laughs> it was so much frustration that I just kind of put my head to the grindstone, my nose to the grindstone, and like um, just kind of experimented with a lot of different stuff. And then I remembered um, all of my global game jam experiences and kind of seeing where I fit into that, that role um, whenever I was on a team. And it was kind of like getting people together, getting people organized. Um, and yes, I, maybe I wasn't the best designer and yes, I wasn't, maybe wasn't the best programmer. I could know enough about those skills to um, plan it all out and get, get stuff going. So you are, at this point where you, you want to be working in the industry, but you can't mm -hmm. quite figure it out, you don't have the, you know, all the skills, so you end up looking to playcrafting, and mm -hmm. how did you figure out, you know, what exactly you needed? I mean, there's there's no real written checklist, right, to, to cross off, like, okay, this is what I need, and then I can have a job. Right. 
So, um, so what did you do? How did you approach that? Well, so I started actually going, before even playcrafting, I started just going to meetup groups. Um, so I had heard from someone um, about meetup groups in the city. So I did like tabletop gaming meetups, um, you know, people showing off their games and you're able to critique and review them and things like that. Uh, and eventually I, I uh, came across playcrafting through meetup and like Eventbrite and all that stuff. And um, I started going to their demo nights, their, you know, monthly or bi-monthly demo nights. And I would see all of these other people kind of showing off their games. And that was kind of the huge motivation for me. I was like, okay, I'm in the city. I'm around all these people. They're able to do it with full-time jobs. Why not me? Um, and so I, that's kind of like the fuel uh, for the fire for me. And I was like looking up, you know, options like i could go back to school for it but i just i couldn't do it with you know my job so you know eventually i saw an email from playcrafting uh for their their what was their second go for their unity course and uh i kind of just bit the bullet and used my savings and figured you know even if i'm not really great when i get out of this i can you know meet other people who are kind of in the same boat as me yeah, that's that's really heartening. Uh, tell me a little bit about what it was like in New York. You know, a lot of times we hear about the video game industry really living, uh, you know, along the coast, uh, mm-hmm. out in California or LA or San Francisco, the Seattle even. But yeah, what is it like uh, in New York? Did that you know did that inspire you even more so with your passion for indie video games? Yeah. So when I started getting involved with playcrafting, which was a little over three years ago, um, the indie scene here was much smaller or if 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 not smaller at least noticeably smaller right because people weren't coming out into all these events uh, that playcrafting and other organizations are doing now um so yeah like i feel like a lot of people in new york especially you know they come to the city you know it doesn't matter your your ultimate dream job it's like you come to the city you don't get your job that you want and then you end up doing some kind of retail or or whatever um and then you, you know, at night you're working on your passion projects, whatever that may be. It, you know, it could be, it could be very disheartening to, to kind of be lost among all these these developers um, or like big corporations, big companies, and then not know if anyone else is out there. Um, but these demo nights and these these meetup groups, you know, you cut through attending them. I started to see like, hey, there's a lot of like little pockets of of people who are interested in doing this sort of thing. Um, and then each demo night and expo, I would notice the number just gets slightly bigger, slightly bigger. And, you know, Dan and Playcrafting, they have to rent out a few more rooms, uh, or a few more hallways to kind of host everyone. Um, and then when I took the course itself, I was like, Hey, these people, like these people are from all walks of life too. <laughs> like, you know, in my classes alone, I've seen people, in fact, Jose, the, um, my main partner at, at EOS, he, was working in the financial business. Um, he came in with like a, a shirt and tie and, and a ponytail. And I was like, who is this douche walking in here? <laughs> and I, to, you know, I, to, I, I told him that after the fact. And he was like, yeah, I get it. Um, but, you know, we've had people in, in the playcrafting courses like come from, you know, people who are actually already doing game design to, you know, graphic designers, programmers, uh, you know, kids fresh out of high school, um, it varies a lot. And that's actually kind of what's great about it. Um, so yeah, like I made it a, a, a point 
when I was taking the course to, and even, you know, even when you go to these demo nights, it's like, just talk to people, you know, sit next to someone different each class um, and just kind of see if, you know, what they're working on, their approach to the, their form of game design, um, because that's what's different in New York is like, whereas people in like bigger companies or maybe out West, they're all kind of focused on like one specific thing, you know, like I'm just going to be an environment designer or a modeler. I'm just going to be a programmer. I'm just going to be a systems guy, whatever. Um, and you're working on these hundred people teams. When you're working on a small team, you all, you have to wear all the hats. Um, and so it's like, everyone's kind of in the same boat where you have to do a lot of different tasks. So you're not all amazing at everything, <laughs> which is a struggle, uh, of course, but that's also kind of what's charming about the New York community. So tell me a little bit about, uh, you know, you, you met Jose and you just decided to start your own studio just, just because? Yeah, so, um, well, I mean, kind of a, a byproduct of this super high barrier of entry that we face in, you know, not only, um, you know, out west, but also on the east coast. Like we have, yeah, we have a few companies, game companies, you know, in New York, but not many of them are like small to mid-sized studios. So it's this weird kind of duality. It's like you either join a really big studio and have an amazing portfolio or, or like someone you know, right, <laughs> to get in a referral. <laughs> yeah. Or there's, there's super, super small studios who are looking for someone who has like years of experience, right? Like people typically from the bigger companies that have worked there for, you know, a few years and kind of like bring a lot of experience. And so when I was in the course, um, Jose and I, once we got out, we were like, okay, let's give ourselves a design challenge. We have one month until the next demo night to present a game. And so we sat down, we talked to each other about, you know, what kind of, um, what kind of games do we like? We actually created a, a Slack, um, a Slack team uh, with all of the students that were interested in joining it uh, for like weekly meetups um, so that we could all kind of still work together after the class and just kind of work on our own projects, you know, uh, help each other out with programming issues or whatever. Um, so it extended beyond that. And then after Jose and I were working on the game for a while, we noticed that, uh, you know, we worked well together. Uh, we presented our game at, um, playcrafting. And then, uh, actually during that development, before we could actually present our game, we had to come up with some kind of team, team name and team thing. Mm -hmm. Um, so during that whole process, we, we both kind of figured going back to the idea of this like weird duality is like, if you can't join a big studio and you can't join a small studio, then the only option that you have, especially in New York is go indie and make your own studio. And you get better by making games. The more games you make, the more games you'll have to point to, the more experience you're gonna get. Um, so that was our motivation behind creating our own team. That's like, full on the indie spirit right it's just yeah eh, we can't get any let's just do it ourselves yeah right? fuck it fuck it we'll do it live right <laughs> <laughs> it's great so so what has that experience been like for you guys as as things have become maybe you know a bit more real um it's it's been very it's been very very fun uh a little stressful of course um but you know it's what i've noticed is it's what actually i'm passionate about and what gives me 
you know, actual pleasure and happiness. Uh, because working my retail job every day, like I would notice that whenever I went to play crafting after work or whenever I just got to sit down at Pret or Starbucks for three, four hours until like until they literally kick us out, um, that I was just happy. Um, so the experience of doing it has been uh, very, very fun. Um, you know, of course, extremely hard and sometimes really, really stressful, especially as like we think about like, okay, now how are we going to actually monetize our business and, you know, all the business stuff that we're not too used to, but Jose thankfully is used to because he comes from a, that like financial background I was right. talking about. Um, so I have him for that, which is very helpful. Um, and uh, yeah, so, you know, what we're going to do as we start to bring more people on. So we, there's still a lot of stuff that we, we're going to have to deal with it going forward. But for right now, um, just the, the, you know, fresh experience of creating something new together is, is what I'm enjoying. That's excellent. So this is not your full-time job at this point. Not yet. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, what are you doing? You said, is, are you still working retail? Uh, so thankfully, no. Um, <laughs> um, about, Six months ago or so, I, I left where I was working in retail to work at the New York Film Academy uh, as a program coordinator for their game design, animation, and VR departments. Um, so it's an administrative role, um, which you know I don't mind. <laughs> Clearly, right. it's uh, it's still it's like scheduling, it's um, you know emailing people, communication, planning rooms, and you know all that stuff, um, which is fun. Yeah, for sure. That's actually that sounds like a actually a pretty cool job so yeah it could be it can be fun yeah (laughs) (laughs) it's it's not full-time game development though let's be real yeah exactly right of course so tell me what you guys are working on right now uh well currently we are working on a game called the take which is going to be a local multiplayer um vr experience uh game for uh the samsung gear vr and its associated controller Interesting. Okay, why pick VR and why why Samsung Gear? Well, uh, VR is something that we're all sort of very much interested in um, mutually. So it's not my team, by the way, is, is not just Jose. Um, we've grown since uh, that first game, which was called Holiseum. Um and we brought on someone named Hispacio Hassan, uh, who actually was also in our Unity course. Um, so about a few months after our first game, you know, we were still doing our meetups and stuff. So we brought him on. He's our, uh, one of our main programmers. Um, and he was someone who was always interested and kind of had early access to, um, VR more than Jose and I. And, uh, so he was working on his own like VR projects and things. And then one day he came to us and was like, hey, guys, I'm working on a a project called Don't Look Away. Are you interested in kind of working on it with me? And so Don't Look Away is a seven to eight minutes horror experience out on the Oculus store right now uh, for free. It's a free, free game. Um, And uh, so we worked on that project for about six to eight months. uh, And we found that we really love working in VR. Uh, VR is like, you know, up and coming it's it's a small-ish market that people are trying to get into right now uh so we decided you know our next our next game and we have experience already working in unity for the gear vr um which is what hispaccio was working on everyone just calls him h or hess uh (laughs) yeah it's a lot easier 
And sure. uh, so we decided, hey, you know what? Let's uh, let's work on a new game of some kind, a VR game. And Hisvaccio is actually he went to something called the Oculus Launchpad program, um, which I think was out in California in June. And so he was kind of like coming up with ideas and then simultaneously Jose and I were coming up with ideas and then we pitched this idea of the take to him when he came back uh, and he decided to uh, work on that with us. So yeah. what do you think about VR? You're, you're working on VR, you mm-hmm. know, a little bit now. What are, you, what are your thoughts on this, you know, new approach to video games and this new approach to interactive media? I mean, what, and what's the future of this look like? Uh, well, definitely. So, I mean, VR in general is the future alongside uh, augmented reality, right? Like, I think they're going to both mutually have their own paths. Um, and of course, there's mixed reality, but like VR is going to be really, really good uh, for giving people contained, separate, isolated experiences, right? Like whether that's a a VR movie or animation that you can experience over and over again, or a contained gaming experience or interactive experience with your friends once online multiplayer stuff starts to come into play. Um, but AR is going to be something that's like people are going to be using in their day to day or creating really cool, like, you know, um, interactive exhibits, interactive uh, games, right? In like large spaces, like, you know, you can imagine laser tag or something uh, in AR. Um, and that's going to be something that's going to be used more likely for your day-to-day, like we use our mobile phones for social media. Uh, but VR itself, I think, will still be prominent just in kind of more contained entertainment forms. Um, and that's why I'm really interested in VR is because uh, you can kind of create these worlds of your own and have people be fully immersed. So going back to like when I was a kid and I was kind of getting lost in these worlds, VR is the ultimate way, you know, barring, you know, you know, tubes going into the back of your head and, <laughs> and programming your, your <laughs> dreams, right? Like in the Matrix or something like that. Um, it's kind of the, the next step for giving people the most immersive experiences possible. Sure. Is that something that's pretty important to you? I remember, you know, earlier in this interview, you talked about discovering indie games, discovering story and narrative mm-hmm. and, and all of that. So is immersion something that you really prioritize you as a developer? Um, Absolutely. So right now, the games that we're focusing on as a team are predominantly like multiplayer based or creating unique or weird experiences. Um, But as a personal developer um, in the future, I definitely want to develop games that are um, much more like, uh, you know, creating, pulling out unique emotions from people, creating stories um, and that sort of thing. So my two passions in game development lie in crafting unique or fun experiences with friends, you know, like the multiplayer stuff or, or the weird or wacky mechanics. And then the other half of me is like, I want to create something that's like really beautiful or um, makes people think, uh, you know, I've, I've actually in college, I got into uh, conceptual art a lot. Um, and of course I, I, I come from a, a theater background. So creating, you know, these emotional or at least, um, contemplative experiences for for my users or players is what i definitely want to do as well well i should tell you i also come from a theater background actually really That's i awesome. did end up majoring in in theater um, oh cool yeah i mean you know i don't make a ton of money but i pay the bills <laughs> it's all right right um uh, yeah and of course now i'm you know 
doing some some work in the video game industry as well. But yeah, we have that in common, that theater background. And I th- I've always found that to be uh, very important for me, both in terms of you know who I am as a person, but also how I approach the work that I do and, and the things that I create. I think that's uh, having that different background has, has always been beneficial for me. Yeah, right? Because it, like, it allows you to tap into like emotional experiences or, or seeing things from other people's perspectives. You know, like, um, like, do you, you, you probably like did Meisner, Meisner, Meisner and, and like really talking, really listening experiences or whatever. I did take Meisner actually. Right. So it's like that sort of acting, you know, I love in that it's kind of like just getting to the point and like really, like really talking to people, um, and kind of, you know, like getting real with people and, uh, that sort of candid nature, um, it's kind of really, really cool. And, you know, games games do that. Like, you have seen indie games out there that have done that, right? Right. Um, like, uh, like That Dragon Cancer, for instance, or like, um, you know, like Gone Home. Like, these things, like, they're not, they're not just, you know, game experiences. They're like, they're meant to, you know, comment on something and really make you think and kind of like hit you hard, but for good reason. Um, and they show that games are not, just you know silly little things are an actual art form if not like the next step of art i can see the passion coming through <laughs> through my screen right now because well because I'm, I'm hearing just in your voice that this is something that you've thought about and something that you think is really important and something that really inspires you oh yeah definitely i mean that sounds like you know you said you're kind of working on some unique um you know multiplayer games and unique experiences in that regard uh, but you mentioned that you also want to make kind of these, um, you know, artful pieces, things mm-hmm. that, you know, um, you know, maybe take your inspiration and, and then alternatively inspire others. And I think that's a very noble goal, you know, and, and not everybody enters this industry with such um, well-placed intentions, right? Some people mm-hmm. just want to make some mobile games and, and try and make a business and, you know, make yeah. a living. <laughs> Um, or try to make the next Minecraft, right? But, right. Um, you know, I'm, I'm very happy to meet you and get to talk to you about uh, something that is clearly very special and very important to you. Yeah. No, I think I think a lot of that comes from, like, my childhood and growing up. Um, you know, because, like, you know, game, you know, everyone has kind of that thing that, like, gets them through their childhood or whatever, and, and games were definitely those things, like, I want to create, recreate those experiences that I had as a kid that, you know, got me through the tough times or um, kind of just made fond memories. So like the the multiplayer aspect um, and having fun with my friends, just like that comes directly from, you know, high school or growing up with my brother and like playing games and just kind of having fun and like not worrying about anything for a few hours. Um, and then like the, the more serious games, you know, just come from, you know... Like times when I would just like play a game to get away from it all and, you know, that form of like escapism um, and just kind of concentrate on a serious narrative that wasn't my own, you know, yeah. um, and kind of get into those worlds. Um, so that's probably why I like those those two different sections of games. Tell me if you can, if you have anything else left to share, because you've already actually shared some really great insight and, and some piece of, pieces of advice for other people. But mm. do you have anything else you want to send people home with today? Um, you know, I would say just don't let your fear 
prevent you from doing anything. Like, just do it. Um, go out and see, like, go out and see other people doing stuff um, and just kind of experience that. Like, and if you want to, if you want to work on games, don't think you have to do it yourself. Like, find other people and just work on something. Um, because it's only through working with other people that you can, you know, be critiqued openly. Um, you can find mistakes, they can find your mistakes. And uh, just like learn to trust in other people's abilities. Um, don't put it all on yourself and, you know, work collaboratively. Uh, but definitely like expose yourself to other people and, you know, see what they can bring to the table. And, you know, they might inspire you in some way. That's Robert Canciello of EOS Interactive. You can actually find him manning the Playcrafting booth at PlayNYC this weekend, so make sure you say hello. You can also find him on Facebook and Twitter under the name Rob Canciello. That's C-A-N-C-I-E-L-L-O. And you can find EOS Interactive spelled E-O-S the same way. And I apologize, I don't want to um, uh, keep pushing on this too much, but you are just still a little quiet. I don't know if you can get any closer, if you can bump any input or anything like that. Oh, yeah, that's so good. Okay, cool. I I leaned in as well. Oh, that's so good. Okay, great. I hope you guys aren't on top of each other or anything. But Oh, we've lived together in New York City for 10 years. We are used to that. Uh, I'm Andy Wallace. Right now, I teach game design and programming at Long Island University. And in addition to that, I work on a lot of kind of smaller game projects. Um, my name is Jane Friedhoff, and I'm an indie dev. Uh, I've worked on a couple games like Slam City Oracles, Second Amendment, and Han Bosca. How do you two uh, come together as a package deal at this point? Oh, well, the most obvious way is that we're married. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but um, we've worked on a lot of projects together. Uh, we've been to, both been into games since we were young. We started dating about 10 years ago, and in that time, we both went to grad school and we both started making games. We bounce a lot of ideas off each other and not infrequently work together on projects, which is what we're doing right now. Yeah, we actually met at a video game design camp which is maybe the nerdiest origin story I've ever heard for a couple. Um, so, I guess go to Game Jams if you're looking for love. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> I would say we also, it's, it's kind of nice because as a creative or development team, we bring two similar but quite different perspectives to the table. Um, I, a lot of my work is about sort of the body and ridiculousness uh, whereas Andy is very interested in creating systems that generate, you know, really interesting interactions, especially if you're minimalist. So on the one hand, you have my sort of over-the-top, ridiculous, often public space-based uh, game design, and you have also Andy's super careful, like, attention to detail and focus on what makes a simple system create interesting and generative things. For sure. Uh, how does that end up working for the two of you to have such different aesthetics, but then end up, you know, working together? And I imagine, you know, maybe on some level that translates to who you are as people and and even living together, like you said, for 10 years. 
Definitely. Uh, I think one thing we often see when we work together is that I will focus a lot on mechanics and making sure the system feels really good, that the various pieces slot together really well. Um, but that sometimes means I'm not looking at the bigger picture or like how people are actually going to interact with this thing. And I think where we come together is I can make the mechanics feel really good and Jane can make sure that the game feels really fun and is really engaging for people to play or engaging for people to watch or draws people into the space or whatever else it needs. Okay, sure. Uh, Dive into that just a little bit more. So, uh, Andy, let let me stay with you for just a second. Um, Talk to me about, you know, these systems that Jane says that you you (laughs) focus on. When you're you're working on a project and, you know, you're thinking about the systems that are in place, uh, especially in this, you know, uh, interactions, and and, uh, I think she also used the word minimalist, where do you where do you start with that and how do you i don't know give me some insight into your work sure yeah so what i tend to do is kind of take an iterative process where i'll have some kind of interaction or something the computer does that i think is interesting and i'll just try to build on that and i will chase the thing that feels most fun about it so the way you see this the most i think is in a game i released a few years ago called particle mace uh which is a top-down space shooter without the shooting you sort of drag all these tethers around and try to smash things up with them And it was this long exercise in paring down what wasn't adding to the kind of core fun experience and then pushing at the things that were. So the result is it's a no-button game. You just use a joystick. Uh, It's really simple in how it plays, but it invites a lot of complexity in getting better over time. Uh, And that's the kind of thing that I really love about game design is finding this tiny kernel of interesting experience shaving away everything else and just trying to amp that as much as possible with as little, uh, you know, kind of fluff as possible as well. I think it's a good uh, kind of intuition to have about this kind of thing because often as game designers, and I'm guilty of this myself, uh, when we run into something that doesn't feel fun, we often want to add more to it, right? You know, we add a power up or we add a boost or we add a new this, that, whatever. Um, But often adding more stuff just sort of clouds what the original problem was. So uh, I think just in general, that's a really good approach to take towards game design. That's sort of pairing away till you find the gem of the thing that's fun. It's definitely interesting. And uh, talking about managing your scope is something that comes up often on the Indie Insider podcast, especially when you yeah. talk to you know aspiring indie developers, people who are trying to create their first games, their second games, their third games, and and kind of you know actually get them done at some point you know uh so it's definitely interesting to hear you say that you you know that you want the minimalist approach but something that works and is engaging uh inherently it's very cool yeah for sure and i think uh, especially now as a teacher for game design yes scope is is such a big thing all the time i have these students who have a project idea i'm like sure it sounds rad but you're going to need a decade to do it (laughs) Uh, But even besides that, I actually think a lot of games, you know, when they can get done, like when your team can do it, it still doesn't mean you need to add things just to add them. Jane, let's switch over to you just a little bit. Sure. Uh, Talk to me about this uh, ridiculousness that (laughs) you refer to as your aesthetic. When you're looking at a project, where do you start? Uh, Tell me a little bit about your work. So I would say with my projects, I tend to think very much and very much upfront. Um, about the people who are going to be playing whatever it is I'm making um, and what it is that they want and what kind of experiences they can have coming out of a game. Because I think we play games as sort of a, you know, release from 
whatever our daily world is and whatever, you know, we're sort of expected to do within that. And I think when we talk about games, we often have a really narrow vision of that, right? It's like, oh, that's why you play Grand Theft Auto and you murder everyone and you drive cars real fast, um, <laughs> which I love. I love Grand Theft Auto. But um, a lot of people do. Yeah. But uh, so not to downplay that, but I think there's a lot of other ways that people, you know, want to behave or want to feel powerful that aren't necessarily, you know, along, along the sort of Grand Theft Auto lines. So um, the games that I tend to make are often about these sort of ridiculous, over-the-top, very cartoony acts of power. So um, Slam City Oracles is a two-player uh, co- collaborative arcade game in which you and a friend, um, basically your high score is determined on how much you can destroy and shake up this animated city. And the way you do that is basically by slamming yourself sort of like like a mosh pit or a trampoline like into all the objects around you, causing them to go flying. And, you know, it is, it's a mechanic and it has, uh, you know, obviously there's like a score system that determines, you know, based on velocity and rotation and this and that, how many points you get. But really it's about sort of channeling this feeling of being in a mosh pit and giving people kind of the folks, or sorry, giving folks the opportunity to sort of have that in a, in a game-like playful form. I made a game with Ramsey Nasser called Hanvaska, which is based on a photo from the 1980s of an older woman hitting a neo-Nazi with her purse. Um, <laughs> so you sort of play kind of like, I don't know what you want to call it, like mini golf, whack-a-mole, whatever, bowling really, with uh, these sort of cartoon uh, baddies and you whack them with your purse as many as you can in 15 seconds. Uh, Second Amendment was a 2D, oh, sorry, a 3D Unity text adventure. So you control a large arm playing a text adventure on a keyboard. Just sort of, I really like pushing what technologies are expected to do and what they're used for and thinking about, you know, how to, how we can sort of think about this idea of, you know, what, what, what experiences people want to have, how people want to feel in their bodies, that kind of thing. Here's one thing that I want to bring up while I'm I'm talking to you about your different aesthetics and your different approaches to interactive media and, and video games. Even when I was doing my, you know, obligatory stalking and I was looking at your individual websites, they very much represent exactly what you guys are talking about. I'm looking at Jane's yeah. website right now and it's, <laughs> you know, it's all playful. over the place. It's it's very playful. It's cool. Um, it's got some... Mine unique... is a grid. And you're... <laughs> It is. It, it's an but, extremely you know, functional grid. Extremely functional. <laughs> I know where everything is. It's great. Um, so no, it, I imagine that um, you know it, it, these are two very different aesthetics. But at the exact same time, I can see how you know that can complement each other. I imagine that working together for ten years, you guys have to figure out how to make you know those differences work in in your favor, right? Yeah, definitely. So like I would say, uh, I'm thinking of a game that we did together and it's not our biggest game, but we did a game called Musclebound Glory for Come Out and Play a couple years ago. And it was, I think it's like a really nice example of the mashup of our aesthetics. So the idea of Musclebound Glory is sort of like, um, uh, it's a game about basically making the perfect 80s one-liner. Right. So from like 80s action movies, when you kill the baddie and then you say the thing, the really good pun. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, so the game is basically about that. There's a couple of decks of cards that lay out who the villain is and where you are and what weapon you use. 
and uh, you know, basically uh, you judge your friends on how well they did. It's kind of like apples to apples, but with 80s action movies. Um, and to me, that feels like a really good, you know, example of the ways that we work together, like figuring out exactly how scoring would work and figuring out, you know, how to keep things interesting. We're sort of on Andy's part of the table, whereas for me, you know, it's about being silly and performing in public space. So I really got to dig into that. Uh, and I go ahead, sir. No, please go ahead, Andy. Uh, I also think one area where we do meet is we kind of come at this from different angles, but I think we both feel strongly that the work we make should be saying something. We're not really content to make a thing just because, oh, well, it'll be cool to play. Like, you have to have something more than that. Um, and I think mine often comes in the form of exploring systems or perhaps poking at something you weren't aware your computer's doing, that kind of thing, when hers comes with joy and catharsis. Um, but we both are very deliberate about wanting these games to do something, uh, which I think makes it a lot easier to approach. Tell me a little bit more about that. So there are a lot of uh, indie devs and aspiring indie devs who are going to listen to this episode because they want to get into making video games, right? And or they make video games now and are looking to, you know, uh, looking for something new, looking for some inspiration, looking to jumpstart something, and. You know, you say that your games should be saying something that that is important to you. That's a priority for you guys in the projects that you work on. But what does that mean? I mean, to somebody who comes to you and says they, you know, they don't know what to make their game about or or something like that. What do you say to those people? Well, I think it can be a lot of different things. And I think it can be about the experience you want the player to have, um, either to offer them something they don't usually have or to make them feel something they don't usually have, which is, I think, what games like Slam City Oracles do really well. Um, but it can also be more mechanical. Like, it doesn't have to be uh, a completely narrative thing. The thing that's being said doesn't have to be like a personal essay necessarily. But I do think when I'm making a mechanic for a game, I want to make sure that it is something that hasn't been seen before, or at least not in this particular arrangement, so that if someone's playing it, they're either learning something about how they can interact with the digital system or just how they can uh, like play, play a game, which sounds a little highfalutin when I say that I'm teaching them how to play a whole <laughs> new game. Uh, but that is kind of it, because if it's not presenting something new and something that's ultimately interesting to the player, what's the point? I think the exciting thing about play is that often it's this sort of process of discovery as sort of hokey and ridiculous as that sounds. So, uh, you know, I think, I think the real delight in play comes with surprising yourself with your own solutions to problems or approaches. Um, so yeah, just to sort of echo what Andy's saying. Going back to what you were saying about games meaning something and what does that even mean? Um, often, the way that I think about it is I kind of want to make a game that only I could have made, which I know is sort of equally impenetrable. But uh, when I think about it, it sort of means, you know, to think about the experiences that I've had in my life or the feelings I've had in my life. You know, it could be anything as simple as like being really happy at a concert or, you know, driving with my friends down the highway and how that felt. And sort of bringing that and poking at that through the form of games. I think often with games, we tend to be like, well, they're either totally ridiculous and over the top, right? They're either Saints Row or they're like a super serious game, you know, about making real change in the world, which, you know, not to downplay either, but <laughs> I don't really think, <laughs> I don't think games have to be didactic in that way. You know, a game made by you about you doesn't have to be an autobiography. It doesn't have to be sad if you don't want it to be sad. 
I think that we all have individual experiences and sort of, you know, memories that we can bring to games in one form or another. Well, let's keep the trend going of talking about um, people and people coming together, and let's talk about Play NYC. So there's this huge convention that's happening in just a couple of weeks in the heart of Manhattan. What do you guys think about uh, Play NYC, Playcrafting's first uh, venture into the convention world? Yeah, I'm psyched. Um, I like Playcrafting as a group a lot. I've been doing stuff with them since they were... uh... Ooh, man, I can't remember their old name. They had a different name, and I was doing stuff with them then, too. This is not a great audio clip at this point. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it'll be really cool. Um, I know some of the folks who are involved. I know they'll put on a good show. I'm looking forward to seeing the games. Uh, and obviously, I'm psyched for the games graffiti section uh, that we're involved in. Right, of course. Uh, tell me a little bit about games graffiti while while we're on the topic. Yeah, so some of the folks running Play NYC tapped uh, Jane and I to help run Games Graffiti. So Games Graffiti is going to be a series of installations throughout Terminal 5. That's the venue where Play NYC is going to be having uh, happening. It's also a super famous concert space in New York, so that's exciting in its own right. Um, and throughout the space, there will be these installations made specifically for Play NYC called Games Graffiti. There's going to be five there. And each one is made specifically for this conference and for the space we're in. So we're making one of them, and then we're coordinating with the other four artists as the kind of games graffiti leads to make sure everyone knows their space, has the equipment they need, and can just generally make something amazing. So don't give too much away, but I mean, what what is games graffiti? What does that even mean? What is, what is this going to look like? Well, it's... Some of them are going to be stuff up on a wall, which I think is how we got the name. But uh, what they are going to be is playable installations. I think the label games fits pretty comfortably on at least most of them. Um, But the idea is to have these playful kind of discoverable spaces throughout the conference. So obviously there will be booths, there will be talks, the kind of things you expect from a conference. Um, But then in addition to that, there'll just be these little kind of sometimes tucked away, sometimes not uh, experiences that are waiting for people that were designed by local game devs and artists, again, specifically for the space. So we've done walkthroughs of the space. Artists kind of picked out where they wanted to be situated and have been designing experiences around that. That sounds... I haven't heard of anything like that at another (laughs) convention. Like this, this is a pretty cool idea. Yeah, it's pretty rare. Um, I mean, I'm not aware of all the commission opportunities in the world, but the one that I can think of is NYU's No Quarter, where they uh, commission a couple of artists to do like one exhibition in New York City. But other than that, I mean, just to sort of say it outright, it's hard to find people to give you money to make the game that you want to make with no without having to worry about the market right like (laughs) so so it was really exciting to be part of that just as a way of being like oh awesome like this is supporting you know developers who are here who are trying to make rent right sure when people are at the convention and they find your installation will they know that it's from you hopefully uh i do believe there will i mean these things it's not going to be an arg or something uh, they will, I believe, be identified in the space. Uh, and I think there will be some information about how to find them as well. They're not top secret or anything. Okay. All right. um, but they are meant to just kind of offer uh, a little bit of surprise or delight to people who may just be walking from, you know, one talk to a different talk or from the bathrooms to the show floor and, you know, maybe walk past something 
that's a little bit bigger, a little more unusual that they have a chance to mess with. I think the one that we're making is, without spoiling anything, uh, pretty, it kind of, it tracks really well with what we were talking about before with sort of systems and ridiculousness. Uh, not to give too much away, but we uh, we found uh, a really fun, weird wall in Terminal 5 that we're excited to uh, get a game on top of. <laughs> Very cool. Well, I would expect nothing less from the two of you. That's great. Um, what are you hoping to take away from Play NYC? It's a good question. I mean, we've been so focused both on coordinating with the other artists as well as making our own piece, um, both of which are time-consuming tasks. That, For sure. Uh, um, yeah, we... We should definitely give it some thought. I mean, I do really like any time there's a chance for New York game devs to show off their work. Because uh, it can feel like there's this big community here, um, but it can feel like there's all these little pockets of it, as opposed to just one kind of large community. So it's really nice to have an opportunity for those different groups to come together, because everyone is making games. Yeah, that's exactly what I would say. Uh that it's really easy to sort of get siloed off, you know, either by the organization that you tend to gel with at the school you went to or the kind of work you tend to make and just become, you know, more and more part of these micro, micro, micro communities within games. And it's really exciting to see uh, kind of all of those people come together and, you know, share their design approaches and share their, uh, you know, business approaches and share their tactics for being, uh, you know, game developers in New York City. That's an interesting point and one that I wanted to talk about. I mentioned at the beginning um, the fact that this convention is taking place in New York City and the fact that, you know, you all are there in New York City making, you know, a living, making careers out of, you know, game development and interactive media development is is huge because a lot of the times I think we think the video game industry is focused around the West Coast or certain areas along the East Coast and, and maybe not in New York, right? Mm-hmm. What yeah. is it like to, you know, do this work in New York? And do you think that Play NYC is the beginning of something or will have a hand in anything? Do you think it's important? So one thing, um, and this is going to lead back to something I like about Play NYC a lot, is that we know a lot of game developers in New York, and we know very few game developers in New York who live solely off their game development, including us. Yeah. We both have other gigs. Uh, and you see that a lot in New York. People are making these really fascinating, amazing games that typically aren't games that are uh, making bank. And I think part of that is because oh, there's a good amount of designers and developers in New York who are kind of keen to make slightly more experimental work. But also just there isn't a, a great framework for it in New York. There are studios in New York that exist for sure, but not a ton. And Playcrafting as an organization has always had a bent towards making game development sustainable. Yeah. Uh, a lot, a lot of their workshops and classes are about how to create games in such a way that you can actually make money from them, uh, which is uh, just a really important part of the equation that isn't always talked about. Yeah, absolutely. I, I completely agree with you. And I think it's important that, you know, I ask this and that, and that you, you talk about this, um, because there are game developers, not just in New York, but all over the world who have other gigs, right? Yeah, and who, totally. you know, who are trying to, you know, maybe make it sustainable and, and just can't and are, are are just starting to try, right? Mm-hmm. And 
you know, even for you guys, I didn't actually necessarily know that you, you know, both did other work besides, you know, necessarily the work that you wanted to be doing. And I know both of you are extremely talented and you've done some amazing things, um, but that's just maybe not the nature of it. You also live in a much more expensive city than I do. So that's <laughs> worth pointing out as well. Right. Yeah. But it is, it's it's important, and I I also agree with you that um, playcrafting has been great about um, you know making game development sustainable, and that's something that we talk about on this podcast as well quite a bit. What are your thoughts about sustainable development, and especially you know now that I know that you guys do other work on the side as well, which you know I do personally, but um, I don't know. What are your thoughts? Uh, I think one thing to keep in mind, especially for aspiring indie devs, is that there is this image of the sort of rock star indie, uh, and that it's worth noting that more often than not, successful indie games uh, happen because of angel money. Like Someone has a rich uncle or aunt who won the lottery or something and was able to give them $30,000 to live with. Or a partner is totally supporting them. That was the next thing I was going to say is that these happened while a partner, yeah, was able to make enough money for them to live for a year working on their game. And that when devs are, I guess I want this to be common knowledge because it doesn't always seem that way. And I really love when devs are honest about this because if you don't have those things, um, making your hit indie game uh, can be next to impossible. Um, so that kind of knowledge that sustainability almost has to happen after some kind of big burst of income um, can make things tricky for people. And that doesn't mean that they shouldn't make games. It just means sometimes that people, uh, especially starting out, should adjust their expectation a little bit. It breaks my heart kind of when I see that someone has dumped a whole lot of savings into their first game uh, because your first game is not good. And that's not the <laughs> fault of any dev. That's true. Like your first 10 games aren't very good. Um, I've been making games for a long time, and most games I start making aren't very good. <laughs> I have a pretty good sense of what I'm doing at this point. So I think working in uh, the sort of projects you want to make from a hobbyist perspective, at least at first, can be a really good way to test the waters and get a sense of your own design and what you bring to the table as an artist, rather than immediately just saying, well, I'm going to quit my job and make the next you know, dream daddy. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Especially because another thing I feel like we don't talk about very often, one, like Andy is saying, is about like money. But two is also really like the drain that it can take on you to be shopping a game all around. Um, Me and Andy have done that both at various times in our life, sometimes at the same time, which has always been a little bit of a like life disaster. I remember there was a year where we missed uh, his birthday, my birthday, Valentine's Day and our anniversary because we were at conferences. We were, you know, chugging coffee and hawking our games and, you know, sleeping on people's couches and that was it. And, you know, you can do that for a little while, but it's really hard, you know? And I think that some people kind of aren't prepared for that. They kind of think that, you know, they'll make their game and they'll post about it and it'll go up on Steam and then it'll be a hit success. But, you know, really, uh, that's, that's one of the things that you have to think about is like, sort of that, that uh, the work that comes after releasing your game, right? And what impact it's going to have on your life and how you can do it healthfully. I, I know people who do that kind of thing a lot and, you know, they can do it. They just are aware after this, these many games that they have to pace themselves in certain ways or rest themselves. And indie devs aren't really good at pacing themselves or resting themselves. <laughs> so I think, you know, people aren't really transparent about that kind of burnout. And I think it would do a lot of good for everyone to be 
sort of more aware of, of how that works. So you can get into a place where you are sustainable. It's interesting that you point that out because that was going to be my next question for the two of you is, mm-hmm. you know, uh, maybe a step beyond that even is, uh, is there, there is a real sense of, of burnout and struggle in this work. This is not easy by any means, especially in the indie space. Uh, and especially when you're working on a small team and or alone and representing yourself. Yeah. Have you two not just, you know, rain yourselves into the ground and sleeping on couches and, and missing birthdays and anniversaries, but <laughs> have you guys ever felt really defeated in this? I mean, you've both been doing this for quite a while now. Have you ever, you know, f- felt like you were defeated and wanted to give up on this? And clearly you haven't, which, you know, thank God for that. Um, but I don't know. Do you, do you have thoughts on that? Yeah, uh, totally. There's, um, yeah, I mean, in terms of feeling defeated, I found, uh, at one point a while back, um, I was like, just in a kind of very low place, mostly because of game design, because my ego had gotten very wrapped up in the success or failure of this project and feeling like my sense of worth was directly tied to like the chart of our sales. Um, you know, Sometimes things don't go super well on sales and it's nice to have made a thing, but if that's your metric of kind of your worth as a person, uh, it can definitely send you to a little bit of a dark place. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, yeah, I mean, that was, that was pretty defeating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I think also, uh, I, I see a lot of parallels between at least in terms of some of the, like the publicity uh, the indie world and the art world, right? So someone will make a game and they as a person will kind of shoot to, you know, like a lot of recognition. Um, and they sort of become, you know, the stars of like the next you know, indie game, the movie, or, you know, the next indie game, the movie or whatever. And it's really easy to compare yourself to other people as a dev and to really like get discouraged because, you know, even if you have all the money, even if you have all the time, a lot of it is just kind of luck, right? Like, even if you've made an amazing game, there's so many variables and so many factors. And I think, I think the other thing too, and this is sort of speaking to what Andy was saying in terms of ego is we have kind of one image of an indie game developer and that's a person who makes all of their money from making games. And anyone else who doesn't do that is wrong and bad and not a real indie dev or whatever, right? I mean, I hope people don't think that, but I think that's sort of a prevailing <laughs> message. Uh, And I think for me, you know, like a lot of my games are weird and dumb and goofy and funny or only take, you know, 15 seconds or a minute to play. So I never really had any thought that they were going to be, you know, super commercial. That was, they weren't going to be Minecraft, right? Um, And for me, I think I just had to decide what it was that I wanted out of games and what I wanted to be able to do. And eventually I found, I was sort of like, well, you know, I'd rather be able to make the dumb joke that's in my head and have it not do very well than stress out for like years and years and years as to whether this idea I have, well, is it really going to be marketable? Is it going to be fun? Should I change it so that it hits this target demo or whatever? I kind of decided that for me, what I wanted was the ability to make whatever game I wanted, whenever I wanted, at whatever scale I wanted, and to be accountable to no one. (laughs) So... When I sort of reframed it in that way in my head, you know, I mean, I love what I do um, on the side, but to me, it, you know, a lo- it helps me make the games that I want to make. And I think 
that lifted me up out of a lot of my bad feelings about like, well, why is this selling or why isn't it popular? Why aren't I popular or whatever? So how do you, Andy and, and Jane, when you're feeling that way, how do you push through that? You know, especially for you, Andy, in that story, um, when, yeah, you, it's, and I've talked to a lot of devs actually quite recently who, yeah, are, you know, their mood each day is affected by what their sales numbers are. And and that's really difficult to separate yourself from. How do you end up pushing through on something like that? Totally, yeah. I mean, first of all, it's definitely not an unusual problem in this field. Um, well, one of, the, uh, one of the things that definitely helped me a lot was just starting to feel confident about it as a piece of art. Uh, I knew I really liked the game. Uh, and I knew other people did too. Um, the Particle Mace was the game in question there. And a lot of people connected with it really strongly um and knowing that those people were that into it eventually uh, kind of eclipsed the sales number thing and now i mean again i was or not again but i was in a lucky situation in so much as i was not depending on this game to like keep a roof over my head um so i had the luxury of you know actually being able to kind of let go of that concern after a while in favor of uh, feeling artistic success at having done something that, like I said, really uh, connected very strongly with a lot of people. Uh, we built an arcade machine for it, and um, that's been bouncing around a few venues in New York. And I know the first time that a band was late to like play their gig because their drummer was playing my game, that felt really good. And then a few <laughs> years later, when a band who played that venue all the time kind of had a like breakout album earlier this year, uh, Inaco, I think is the band name, and the like hit off it is called Particle Mace. And it is in fact like it's making reference to that arcade game that they liked playing at Silent Barn in New York. Uh, and so those kind of things don't make money exactly. In fact that arcade machine uh definitely lost a lot of money because it was expensive <laughs> to make. But those kind of things were able to make me feel really good about the project as well as just kind of ultimately realizing that I'm not my game. Yeah, totally. And I think I think for people who are aspiring or who are feeling like sort of, you know, in the depths or whatever, like sometimes it is just helpful to, I mean, maybe this is just depressing, but it's helpful to remember that like a lot of people feel this way. You know what I mean? You're not the only person who has ever felt stupid and then stupid for feeling stupid about getting upset because your game didn't do xyz or you didn't get picked for abc or whatever um people really present uh and this goes in general not just for indie games but people you know present a certain face or brand of themselves on social media and in public and in blog posts and that often doesn't match up to how they're feeling on the inside so usually, you know, whatever feeling you have, someone who you like or respect or who get, whose games you've really liked uh, has felt very similarly and had to figure out how to get through it just like you have. Totally. People don't really post their defeats on social media. So it looks like everyone else is just <laughs> winning all the time. Totally. That's totally valid. Um, I, I got to be honest. Both of you are incredible. I've just loved talking to you guys so much. Um, well, and I say that because I think I said we would talk for 20 some minutes and we're now about to reach the 40 minute mark. Yeah. Uh, like it, it's just great. So thank you both so much for taking the time to talk to me. Um, yeah, absolutely. This has oh been God. wonderful. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. And again, if I can ever convince you guys to come back on the show and do a full interview with me, I want to talk You've convinced more. convinced us, I think. Yeah, please send, send us an email. <laughs> we're easy. <laughs> we, will, we will stay in touch then. That would be awesome. I'd love that. Awesome. Yeah. Well, uh, let's talk about three last things really quickly. Cool. Um, what are you guys working on right now? So I am, um, 
I usually am juggling a few projects. So I have a few things that I'm doing. Uh, one is kind of my largest game I'm working on now is a tactical deck building game, sort of like a Dominion or Match the Gathering meets XCOM. Okay. Uh, still very prototypey. Uh, definitely some bugs to work out, but um, that's something I'm doing. Then I also have a sequencer toy, kind of opposite end of the spectrum, uh, that I'm working on with this musician in New York named Dan Friel. And so this one is not particularly a game, but it's more just a toy for iOS that people can sort of tap around. Folks who don't have musical experience can make a beat, and there's all these interesting visuals that go along with it, um, and just kind of have fun experimenting with music that way. Uh, and then I also have a project I'm doing, uh, another Magic the Gathering related one, because I think I have a type recently, <laughs> of actually using a machine learning algorithm to create new art for Magic the Gathering cards by having it train on all the existing art uh, so that eventually these things can be paired with cards by this Twitter account, Robo Rosewater, that uses machine learning to generate Magic the Gathering cards and we can uh, play a tournament with them. Interesting. Those are those are a few of my ongoing projects at the moment. <laughs> Very cool. Very cool. Jane, what are you up to? Gosh. Uh, so right now, uh, everything is sort of, it's sort of like a new season of stuff is happening. So a lot of things are about to happen uh, and sort of in progress. So I have a commission that I can't currently talk about, but it's going to be for a weird uh, digital web game that I'm super excited for. And then, yeah, doing this project uh, for Play NYC with Andy which I'm super stoked on. Right, and people are going to see that pretty soon. And you both are going to be at Play NYC, right? Yeah, yeah, we'll both be there. Mm -hmm. So all of your fans listening to this show right now should come <laughs> and stalk you and, and find you guys out there. Please come say hi. Excellent, <laughs> great. Um, how can people find you out on those interwebs if they've enjoyed our talk today? Uh, my website is at janefriedhoff.com. That's F-R-I-E-D-H-O-F-F. I'm also Jay Friedhoff on Twitter. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I have my portfolio site is andymakes.com. Uh, probably the best place to see what I'm up to is Twitter at Andy underscore makes. Uh, I also have a Tumblr where I post kind of work in progress type stuff, which is andymakesgames.tumblr.com. Uh, uh, those are all good places to see stuff of mine. Perfect. Checked off all the boxes. <laughs> and of course, the last thing, and I warned you guys about this in advance, so I hope you're ready. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm going to ask both of you to give a piece of advice. Now, you've already offered up a lot of advice in this episode already, <laughs> so let me go ahead and just say thank you for all that. But do you have anything else to send people home with today? People who, you know, are maybe stuck in anything that's been true or relevant for you guys recently? Yeah, sure. I have one slightly longer piece. Of, I could give you two pieces of advice, but I'll try to keep them both short. I'll take it. So uh, the first piece of advice I would give, um, when I was teaching code to beginners, um, and beginners of like all ages, so, you know, 20s, 40s, 50s, so on and so forth, um, a lot of folks would be sort of like stressed out that they weren't uh, computer science majors, right? They, they didn't study programming in high school or college or whatever. They kind of felt like, oh, you know, if I knew I wanted to do games, why did I study film or creative writing or, you know, this or that or whatever. And I would just say, um, don't have that FOMO <laughs> about your past if you can help it. Like, if you weren't 100% game dev, 100% computer science all the time, that's not only, like, not bad, that's good. Like, 
the things that you have in your pocket, by which I mean the talents, the interests, the things that you care about, can only enrich your game design practice. And I'm often a better game designer and like person who writes about games when I've taken in other forms of media. Um, it's good to have other interests. It's good to be well-rounded. And all of those things just pipe into whatever kind of making practice you have. So don't have FOMO about that. Whatever you have makes you you and makes your practice you, and that's awesome. And then the second thing I would say is that every time I've made a good game, about 80% of the way through, I have hated it more than anything I've ever made in my life. <laughs> it always seems like the biggest pile of absolute garbage at about 80 to 90% of the way done with it. And after that, it's awesome. So if you're in the woods with your game right now, trust that this has happened to me many times. Uh, and I think it happens to a lot of people where, you know, it's sort of darkest before the dawn. So keep pushing, you'll get there. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with that. Um, I also have two pieces of advice. One of them is real quick. Great. <laughs> no, <laughs> so I love it. I'll take it. Yeah, so so the bigger one, uh, and this is something I tell my students, this is something I tell anyone who's interested in getting into games, is you need to make something. Uh, it doesn't matter how bad it is. Um, it should be small. Don't try to make Final Fantasy. If you've never made a game before, you won't finish it and you'll feel bad. Um, but just make something. Make something quick. Make something dirty. Um, don't write a game design document because a game design document isn't a game. I can't play a Word document you've been working on for seven years. I can play a messy paper prototype you made in the last three hours. I can play a like game maker game that you were just clicking on stuff and trying to figure out. Um, if you want to make games, you need to make games because you have no idea what a game is like until someone else plays it. And you just can't do that until you make it. Um, yeah, so there's that. And then second piece of advice, and this is for people making games, but also mostly just for people who are interested in playing games. And that's uh, whatever game you want to get, check it to see if it's on itch.io. And if you're a game maker, <laughs> post your work on itch.io. It's free. Itch, yeah, it's free. Itch.io is an amazing service. Um, it, of anything I've checked out, it is the best deal for the game makers and game players. Um, it's extremely user-friendly, or customer-friendly, user-friendly, dev-friendly. It's a really good service. I can't recommend it enough. People should be trying to buy through itch.io whenever possible. Yeah. I love it. I'm a fan as well. So I, I'm actually really happy that you brought it up. That's great. Um, both of us have itch.io pages. So buy our games there. <laughs> <laughs> and that's it for the Road to Play NYC miniseries. It has been my immense pleasure to talk to all of these amazing people and share their thoughts and advice with all of you. And remember, if you don't have your tickets yet, you can get 20% off by entering the promo code INDIEINSIDER when you check out. One word, all caps. If you can't tell by this point, Play NYC is going to be amazing, and it is this weekend, so don't miss it. Also, please, 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 please stick with us here at the Indie Insider Podcast. We're beginning our 50th episode special next week with special guest Frederick Wester, CEO of Paradox Interactive. Then Craig Morrison from Blizzard will be here for episode 49, and then the one and only Nolan Bushnell will be here for the 50th episode. And don't forget, we have other special guests, giveaways, and more. If you have thoughts or questions you'd like to share, don't hesitate to send me an email at logan at blackshowmedia.com. You can also find me on Twitter at Logan A. Schultz. That's S-C-H-U-L-T-Z. Additionally, Indie Insider is now officially on Twitter, so you can find us at Indie underscore Insider, and you can find us on Instagram under the name Indie Insider as well. 
Finally, special thanks to Raghav, Daniel, Raquel, Jen, and Dorian over at Blackshell Media, Dan from Playcrafting, and our guests Rob, Jane, and Andy. All music in this episode is courtesy of Purple Planet Music. Thank you so much for joining us for the Road to Play NYC miniseries. We're back with regular episodes next week, and I will see you then.